Here we go. Good morning. We have a great deal of important information to share, and I ask for your patience and cooperation for the next 30 minutes. First, I want to extend my sincere condolences to the Clark family. Jamar Clark deserves an opportunity for a full and productive life. We are saddened that this tragic incident means he won't have that opportunity. Second, let me thank the BCA for a very thorough and professional investigation. Along with help from the FBI, this is a very complete job done in an expeditious time frame of four months. After this brief introduction, I'll share a summary of the legal standard by which we must evaluate the evidence in this or in any other homicide. Second, I'll share a chronology of the events that occurred the night of November 14th in the morning of November 15th, 2015. This will be followed by a detailed review of the evidence concerning A, whether or not Jamar Clark was handcuffed, and B, the evidence surrounding the use of force by the police officer. Third, I will announce my decision on whether to charge the police officer. Fourth, I will show key parts of the video on that screen. Fifth, I'll take questions. As you depart, you will be able to obtain a copy of my remarks on our website immediately. Later today, our website will include the following information, including the speech I'm going to give to you now. It will include a report using a detailed analysis of the facts of this case. Various video recordings, complete recordings. The DNA reports, the autopsy report, all of the police reports and interviews. This way, you can review virtually every piece of material that we reviewed before making our charging decisions, and you can draw your own conclusions. This level of transparency is unprecedented. And finally, every governmental entity, especially those in public safety and justice, must continually evaluate their procedures to make sure they meet the challenges of today and not merely reflect the practices of yesterday. This office has undertaken such a review and our in-depth analysis of and our decision not to use the grand jury in police-involved shootings. By making this tough charging decision ourselves, we're increasing the level of accountability and transparency our communities deserve from us. Police have a very difficult job. They are often required to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. Nationally, this job has only become more challenging due to the lack of trust between the community and the police. That's why I believe police departments must regularly review their practices and procedures to make sure they are more effective and just in serving all of our communities. In late January, police chiefs from the major cities across this country, including Minneapolis and St. Paul, gathered in Washington, D.C. at the Police Executive Research Forum. 
In their own words, they called for, quote, drastic change in training and policies within the police departments in order to, to dramatically cut the number of officer-involved fatal shootings. I support the efforts of the Minneapolis Police Department to review their past practices and strive for improvements to enhance training and revise procedures. This case and other recent police shooting cases around the country reinforce my belief that revised police training and practices must emphasize the de-escalation of disruptive situations by non-lethal methods wherever possible. Police must use discussions, negotiations, and peaceful interventions first. They must be willing to tactically withdraw and slow down volatile situations. And if force is necessary, they need to use the lowest level of force possible, physical restraint, mace, tasers, for example, before threatening to use or actually using deadly force. We simply must reduce the number of situations where guns are discharged by police. This will not only save lives and members of the community, but it will also protect police officers from the tragedy that they face when duty requires them to take a life of another. Now, I want to be very clear. These remarks are not a reflection of the actions of Officer Greenberg or Schwartzie on November 15, 2015. This is case is not at all similar to some of those seen around the country, in Chicago, in Cleveland, or North Charleston, South Carolina. These officers were called upon to respond to a person who had assaulted a girlfriend and interfered with the paramedics who were trying to assist her. These officers officers did not have the opportunity to withdraw or to negotiate. Finally, let me say that all of us have a role in reducing community violence. This responsibility rests with us individually and collectively. We know that violence begets more violence. The genius of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. is that they saw old ways did not work, that nonviolence can only defeat violence. We all must stop using violence against those we love and those we do not love. We must be more civil when we speak to each other, and this includes interactions between the community and the police. Please, lower the volume. Let us show respect towards every person, no matter how much we may dislike them. All of us, prosecutors, police, community, have so much work to do to reduce the violence, only by working together can we accomplish it. Now, let me turn to the law that controls the prosecutor's review of this or any other homicide. I will begin with the controlling Minnesota statutes and case law. In order to bring a charge against a police officer for using deadly force, the state must be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the officer's use of deadly force was not justified. This legal standard remains the same, regardless of whether the factual determination is made by the prosecutor or by the grand jury. In order to charge second-degree manslaughter, the state must be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused person acted with culpable negligence in creating an unreasonable risk of death or great bodily harm. Culpable negligence has been defined 
by the Minnesota courts to mean acts that are grossly negligent combined with an element of recklessness. In order to charge second-degree murder, the state must be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused intended to cause the death of the victim. In order to charge first-degree murder, the state must be proved beyond a reasonable doubt not only that the accused intended to cause the victim's death, but also that the action was premeditated. Those are standards society recognizes when it comes to holding one criminally responsible for killing another. The statute authorizing a police officer's use of deadly force in self-defense or defense of others is similar to that of civilians. However, courts have interpreted the provision for law enforcement in a way that sets a high bar for obtaining a criminal conviction against a police officer for use of force. Under Minnesota Statute 609.066, Subdivision 2, police officers in Minnesota are justified in using deadly force in the line of duty when it is necessary to protect the officer or another person from apparent death or great bodily harm. This statute provides a significant defense to criminal charges against an officer for use of deadly force. In Graham versus Connor, the United States Supreme Court held that the use of deadly force by a police officer must be evaluated from the perspective of a reasonable police officer on the scene and in the same circumstance. Reasonableness of police use of force cannot be evaluated from the perspective of a civilian, nor can it be evaluated with a more clear vision of 20-20 hindsight. The court further said in Graham that the fact that the law enforcement officers often are required to react quickly in tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving situations needs to be taken into account in determining reasonableness. Since Graham, the Supreme Court has narrowed the analysis to focus on the exact moment the force was applied. If the evidence in a particular case shows the officer's use of deadly force was justified by the statute and under the Graham decision, criminal charges against that officer for manslaughter or murder cannot be brought. The only time manslaughter or murder charges can be filed against a police officer, regardless of who makes the charging decision, is when the use of deadly force is not justified. To repeat, the evidence must show unreasonable conduct by the police, utilizing the perspective of police officers, and the use of deadly force was not necessary to protect the officer or the public from the threat of great harm or death. Let me now trace the chronology of the events of November 14th and 15th. The events leading up to the tragic death of 24-year-old Jamar Clark in the early morning hours of November 15th occurred near 1611 Plymouth Avenue in North Minneapolis. The addresses on the south side of this block consisted of an apartment building attached by breezeway to a townhome. Yelp's Lodge, a social club, is located across the street from 1611 Plymouth on the north side of the block. November 15th was a warm evening, and many residents were out in the balcony on the south side enjoying the evening. Patrons of the Elks Club were, at this time, starting to leave that establishment. On the evening of November 14, 2015, a number of friends and family were hosting a birthday party for an Akelia Sharp, age 39, in apartment 103 
at 1611 Clinton Jamar Clark was present with his girlfriend, Rayanne Hayes, age 41, and a number of his relatives. Late in the evening, Sharp and her husband started arguing in the hallway. Rayanne Hayes attempted to break up the argument, and Jamar Clark grabbed her. Hayes and Clark then fought, and Hayes injured her ankle in the fight. During this altercation, both Clark and Hayes suffered facial wounds which bled. At 12.20 a.m. on November 15th, Rayanne Hayes called 911 and asked the paramedics to come to her daughter's apartment in that building. EMS paramedics Tyler Haskell and Wellesley Thomas responded to the call. They parked their ambulance on the south side of Plymouth Avenue in front of 1611 Plymouth. Their paramedics entered the building and went to apartment 204 where they found Hayes. Ms. Hayes was intoxicated and unable to walk. Her lip was split, she had bruising on her left eye and an abrasion on her nose. The paramedics put Hayes into a stair chair to carry her down the stairs. As paramedics carried Hayes out of the building, they saw Jamar Clark standing outside the building and, quote, acting kind of odd, end quote. As they walked past Clark, Hayes said, quote, that's the guy who did this to me, end quote. The paramedics radioed for police backup because the apparent assailant was on the scene. As the paramedics were transferring Hayes from this chair to a stretcher to load her in the ambulance, Clark approached them saying he was her son. Hayes said he was not her son. Clark then began calling paramedic Thompson a pussy, a bitch, and told Hayes that he was going to come see her. The paramedics loaded Hayes into the ambulance and locked the door. Thompson and Haskell were very afraid at this point. Clark began knocking on the ambulance door, trying to get into the ambulance. Shortly after Hayes and the paramedics locked themselves in the ambulance, EMS Deputy Chief Michael Trullinger, was aware of the paramedics' call for assistance by the police, arrived in the scene. Trullinger saw Clark tapping in the back of the ambulance, saying his mother was in there. Clark advised Trullinger his name was Darius. Clark alternated between throwing his hands in the air and putting his hands in his pocket. Trullinger, a Marine Corps veteran, was concerned by Clark's body language. Trullinger asked Clark to step aside. Clark moved a few steps away but kept fidgeting and taking his hands in and out of his pockets. Clark, at that evening, was wearing a long-sleeved sweatshirt and a jacket. Trullinger noted that Clark was crying at times and his emotions appeared to be rapidly changing. Because of new security features in the ambulance, the paramedics could not move from the back from the patient area in the back to the driver's area without getting out the side door of the ambulance. In essence, the ambulance carrying Hayes could not leave for the hospital because the driver was caught locked in the back because of their concern of the issues raised by Mr. Clark. Soon thereafter, MPD officers Schwartzy and Riggenberg arrived on the scene from the 4th Precinct Station House, which is only three blocks away from 1611. They parked behind EMS Supervisor Tollinger's Suburban. Because the officers were so close to 1611 Plymouth and the call was for ambulance assistance, they did not activate the lights and siren 
which in turn means their squad car video camera was not automatically engaged. Drulinger met the officers and told them that the person in the ambulance was assaulted by the person on the curb who was also interfering with treatment by the paramedics. At 12.49 a.m. on November 15th, officers Riggenberg and Schwartzy approached Clark and noticed his hands were in his jacket pocket. They told him to take his hands out of his pocket. He refused. Riggenberg then took his gun out and held it down alongside his leg with the barrel pointing towards the ground. He did not point it at Clark or at any other individual. Clark started yelling, quote, what's the pistol for, end quote. The officers again and repeatedly told Clark to take his hands out of his pockets, and he continued to refuse to do so. Ringenberg put his gun back in the holster and grabbed Clark's right wrist, while Schwartzy grabbed Clark's left hand. Schwartzy then took his handcuffs out, but said he was not able to get them on Clark. In the ensuing struggle, Schwartzy dropped the cuffs. Ringenberg had been trained in his prior work as a police officer in San Diego to take a suspect to the ground when he or she resisted being handcuffed because it was believed to be a safe way to put handcuffs on. After Clark resisted being handcuffed standing up, Ringenberg reached his arm around Clark's chest and neck and took him to the ground. This occurred at 12.49, 29 a.m. Ringenberg landed on his side on top of Clark, who was on his back. In essence, Clark's back was to the ground, and Ringenberg's back was to Clark's stomach. Ringenberg said he tried to move away from Clark to get in position to handcuff him. Ringenberg felt his gun go from his right hip to the small of his back and told Schwartzy, he's got my gun. Ringenberg said he reached back to the top of his gun and felt Clark's whole hand on the gun. Ringenberg repeatedly told his partner Schwartzy, he's got my gun, he's got my gun. Ringenberg recalled hearing Schwartzy tell Clark to let go of the gun or Schwartzy would shoot. Ringenberg heard Clark say, quote, I'm ready to die. Ringenberg said, quote, that was the worst feeling ever because it just, my heart just sank, end quote. Ringenberg believed he was going to die at this point because he had no control over his gun. Ringenberg felt that Clark didn't care what happened to him and remember thinking he didn't want his partner to die with the gun. After Ringenberg heard the gun go off, he was able to roll over and stand up. Schwartzy said that as the officers approached Clark, he had, he, Clark, had, quote, this thousand-yard stare, end quote. And by the way, all of these quotes are taken directly from police reports, statements, either civilians or police, and they will be available on our website later today. Schwartzy said that after Ringenberg used the takedown maneuver, Schwartzy maintained control of Clark's left hand, was waiting for Ringenberg to turn Clark over so they could handcuff him. Schwartzy heard Ringenberg say, quote, he's got my gun, end quote, in a very, quote, stern, excited, very serious, end quote, tone. Schwartzy, who had had his handcuffs out, dropped the handcuffs in the ground and took out his gun. Schwartzy said he put the gun to the edge of Clark's mouth and said, let go or I'm going to shoot you, end quote. 
Schwartzy recalls Clark looking directly at him and saying, quote, I'm ready to die. Schwartzy said the, quote, only thing I could think of to do was to save our lives and everyone else in the immediate area, so I pulled the trigger. Schwartzy said the gun did not fire because the slide was only partially pulled back. Schwartzy heard Bring a Bird saying, shoot him. But a panicked voice, so Schwartzy pulled the trigger again, and the gun fired. Clark was shot approximately 61 seconds after the, first police, the police first approached. Terlinger, as I stated earlier, had briefed the officers when they arrived at the scene. Trulinger then went into the ambulance containing Hayes, the other paramedic. Trulinger asked Hayes if the person outside was her son. She said he was not. He was her boyfriend, and he had beaten him up. Her Trulinger and the paramedics then heard a gunshot. They hit the floor momentarily, and then Trulinger looked out to see the officers standing up and spread apart. Trulinger saw Clark on his back on the ground bleeding with his arms to the side, and Trulinger called for another ambulance. The ambulance with Hayes then left for North Memorial Medical Center. Trulinger rushed to Clark, checked his pulse, ran to his truck to get his trauma bag. Trulinger noticed a pair of handcuffs on the ground near Clark, somewhere near his hips. Hennepin County Medical Center Center paramedics Maria Hill and Tyler Lukies respond to the scene in the second ambulance, arriving at 12.54.49 a.m. and saw Trulinger assisting Clark. Hill asked MPD officer Reamer for help checking Clark for weapons, and no weapons were found. As EMS paramedics Hill and Lukies went to move Clark to a stretcher, they noticed open handcuffs in the grass near Clark's right side. Lukies grabbed the handcuffs by the hinge and moved them out of the way so the paramedics could put Clark on the stretcher. Clark was loaded on the stretcher and quickly into the ambulance to take it to Hennepin County Medical Center. Officer Schwartzke of the 4th Precinct arrived at the scene within minutes of the shooting. The scene has become very chaotic with 50 to 60 people in the immediate area, many yelling at the police. The other officers arriving to take control of the scene, Schwartzke was concerned for the safety of Schwartzke and Regenberg, so he removed them from the scene. Schwartzke took Schwartzke took Schwartzke's firearm and moved Schwartzke and Regenberg to his squad. Schwartzke was placed in the front and Regenberg in the back. They did not discuss the incidents on the short drive to the fourth precinct. At the precinct, Schwartzy and Riggenberg were placed in separate offices according to procedure. Each officer was later read a public safety statement, which is meant to determine whether there is a weapon used or missing or other immediate safety concerns. Schwartzy said he had fired his weapon and the handcuffs were missing. Crime scene tech technicians later took photos of Schwartzy and Riggenberg collecting their firearms as well as Riggenberg's duty belt for forensic examination. Their uniforms were not connected at this time, but were later. After Clark was, Clark was transported by an ambulance and the scene was secured, crime scene technicians examined the area where Clark was shot. They recovered a pair of handcuffs with a clasp open, medical items, and car keys from Schwartz's Ringenberg squad. 
The ambulance used to transport Hayes was taken to the MPD forensic garage, processed for fingerprints and DNA and video recovery. The video from the second ambulance was also recovered. Those two videos will be shown to you later this morning. MPD crime lab personnel went to HCMC and photographed Clark, including photographs of his wrists. A number of witnesses were also identified at the scene. Those witnesses were transported to the homicide unit at Minneapolis Police where homicide investigations were taken. When the officer went to see Clark approximately 3 a.m., he took pictures of Clark's wrists, of which no bruises are shown. He called a forensic scientist who came over and took additional picture of Clark's wrists, and no occlusions or bruises were shown. Several items of video evidence were also obtained. The video from the back of the ambulance in which Rayanne Hayes was transported, the video from the back of the ambulance which Jamar Clark was transported, video from a public housing camera, video from a police poll camera, video from 54 squad cars who responded to the cold three call, video and audio from a squad car in which officers Ringenberg and Schwartz were transported to the 4th Precinct, video from Danny Blaylock, video from a known female Hard drive from the Elks Club Lodge camera later determined to be inoperable. You will see, as I said to you before, at the end of today's presentation, some of that video and all of the video in complete unedited form will be available on the website later today. Autopsy of James Clark. He died November 16, 2015 at 9.32 p.m. The next day, an autopsy was conducted by Hennepin County Chief Medical Examiner, Dr. Andrew. The cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head. The toxicology report showed that Clark had a blood alcohol level of 0.09 and THC in his blood as well. Dr. Baker carefully examined Clark's wrists externally and internally and determined there was, quote, no occult contusions, way language says bruises, or other injuries suggested of restraint, end quote. In other words, there was no evidence of injuries from the handcuffs. Early in the morning of November 16th, pursuant to a recently adopted Minneapolis Police Department policy, which I support, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension took over the investigation into the death of Jamar Clark. Later that day, Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges asked the United States Department of Justice to join the investigation into the death of Jamar Clark. The investigation included 122 BCA reports, totaling 1,370 pages, autopsy, 21 DNA reports, and 97 Minneapolis Police Department supplemental reports. In my review of each and every document, it took me 31 hours. There were additional federal reports as well, which were part of our decision, but if not, we do not have the capacity to do so. That's up to the police. The BCA submitted its report to this office on February 10th. As is common practice, we asked for additional investigation, which the BCA promptly did. On March 16th, I announced that the charging decision on officer-involved shootings and deadly force cases resulting in death would no longer be submitted to a grand jury. Instead, the county attorney would make that determination 
as is done with all other criminal cases that come to this office. I review this case along with three very senior prosecutors and issue this report today. One of the primary issues in this case, an important focus of our investigations, is whether Jamar Clark was handled. There is no dispute that Officer Ringenberg took Clark to the ground. It is also clear that Ringenberg was on top of Clark after they went to the ground, and he remained there until Clark was shot by, by Officer Schwartz. The question is whether Clark was handcuffed at the time he was taken to the ground and shot. There are conflicting eyewitness accounts regarding the presence of the handcuffs. Ringenberg, Schwartz, and 10 other paramedic or law enforcement witnesses who observed Clark at the scene have stated that Clark was not handcuffed. By contrast, 20 civilian witnesses who provided information regarding handcuffs give differing versions. Two said Clark was not handcuffed. Six were uncertain if Clark was handcuffed, and 12 were certain that he was. Of these 12, they disagree as to whether Clark was handcuffed with his hands behind his back, hands in front of him, and some of them said he was only handcuffed on his left hand. It's not unusual after a traumatic event to have differing and often contradictory eyewitness statements. We see that in most of our cases. The fact that statements are contradictory does not mean in any way that a person is lying or trying to tell stories. In such cases, we prosecutors got to look to forensic evidence and all the statements and compare them where the people were and their access and their capacity to make their observations. In addition to lack of physical injuries to Clark's wrists, which would have occurred during a violent struggle if he had been handcuffed, other forensic evidence established that Clark was not handcuffed. Laboratory testing found the presence of Clark's DNA on Ringenberg's duty belt and the grip of Ringenberg's gun. The forensic evidence that Clark grabbed Ringenberg's holster is also strong corroboration that Clark was not handcuffed behind his back, as described by several of the witnesses, because if he was handcuffed behind his back, there's no way he could have used his hands to try to pull Ringenberg's gun. Photos at the hospital show no handcuff injuries on Clark. As I stated earlier on November 15th, homicide detectives visited Clark in the intensive care unit, took pictures, and saw no injuries. Forensic scientists also went two hours later and found no evidence of bruising, and those photographs will be made available in this report. This documented absence of obvious handcuff injuries hours after the incident is important corroboration that Clark was not handcuffed at the moment he was shot. On November 17th, Chief Hennepin County Medical Examiner Dr. Andrew Baker performed an autopsy. Baker said, no occult contusions or other injuries suggestive of restraint. Dr. Baker's finding of no internal or external signs of handcuff injuries is consistent with the photos taken of Clark's wrists at the hospital. This forensic medical evidence also strongly corroborates the statements of the officers that Clark was not handcuffed at the time he was struggling with Riggenberg and not handcuffed at the time he was shot. 
Schwartz's handcuffs were found in the gra grass near where Jamar Clark was shot. The handcuffs were recovered by MPD forensic scientist Nicole Benway and ultimately taken to the DCA for forensic testing. The inside of the handcuffs were swabbed and examined for DNA. There was no DNA found inside the handcuffs. Blood was found outside of the handcuffs, and testing revealed it was a match to Clark. The blood spatter on the handcuffs was Clark's and was on only one side of the handcuffs. This is consistent with the officer's statements that the cuffs were never on Clark. Having fallen to the ground during the struggle, one will expect, expect blood spatter only on one side. Further, had Clark been handcuffed behind his back, it seems highly unlikely blood could have spattered on the cuffs as the entrance wound was towards the front of Clark's head and there is no exit wound. Clark's body, if he had had head cut, excuse me, Clark's body, if he had handcuffs on, would have shielded the cuffs from blood under these circumstances. Officers Ringenberg and Schwartz, he gave statements that they attempted to handcuff Clark, but were never able to succeed, which is why Schwartz's handcuffs were found out and at the scene. The officer's statements are consistent. After Clark was taken to the hospital, Ringenberg and Schwartz were taken to the police station and separated. Their DNA samples were taken. When Lenway asked Ringenberg the standard questions, about any DNA transfers. Ringenberg said that Clark had grabbed my holster and my gun. Lenway then collected Ringenberg's duty belt as well. DNA swabs to be used as known samples were collected from Ringenberg and Schwartze, as well as other first responders. A known DNA sample was also taken from Jamar Clark. These DNA samples together, the two firearms and Ringenberg's duty belt were submitted to the BCA laboratory for evaluation. Forensic DNA testing on Ringenberg's duty belt shows mixtures of DNAs in several areas. James Clark DNA was found on Ringenberg's holster and mace holder. Clark's DNA was also found on the front left handcuff holder and the back left handcuff holder, located on Ringenberg's duty belt. And again, DNA testing conducted on the grip of Ringenberg's gun revealed Jamar Clark's Present of Clark's DNA, the duty belt, and the grip of the gun. Strong forensic evidence of the officer's statements that Clark's hand was on the grip of Ringenberg's gun. Clark simply could not have been handcuffed and attempted to seize the gun while they were on the ground. Legal analysis. The evidence detailed above does not support the filing of criminal charges against Officer Dustin Schwartz or Mark Ringenberg for the fatal shooting of Jamar Clark. At the time he was shot, Clark was attempting to gain control of Ringenberg's firearm. Ringenberg reasonably believed that if Clark had succeeded in removing the weapon from his holster, Clark would have shot both officers as well as exposing third parties to danger of injury by firearm. Ringenberg and Clark were resting on the ground in a position which rendered Ringenberg unable to remove Clark's hand from his firearm, now on the small of his back. Ringenberg communicated to Schwartz that Clark had his firearm, that Schwartzy should shoot Clark. Schwartzy did. His actions were reasonable given both his observations and Ringenberg's plea. Eyewitness testimony was contradictory on this central issue. Those who have stated that Clark was handcuffed are themselves contradictory. Some say one wrist, some say two. Some suggest he was handcuffed in the front of his body, some in the back, casting doubt on the statements 
without reference to physical evidence. Forensic evidence and video evidence both support the belief that Clark was not handcuffed at any time through the altercation. Let me now talk a bit about the use of deadly force and the statute that applies there. When the police first encountered Clark on November 15th, they knew, one, he was the alleged assailant in the domestic assault, which resulted in need for medical attention by the victim. Two, he had interfered with the EMS personnel to the degree that they requested police intervention. Three, as the police approached Clark, his hands were in his jacket pocket and he refused directives to remove them from the pockets. And four, when they tried to handcuff him, he resisted arrest, compelling the use of force, trying to put handcuffs on him. When Clark was forcibly taken to the ground by Ringenberg, Clark continued to resist by struggling with Ringenberg. Because they had fallen with Clark on his back and Ringenberg's back to Clark's front, Clark was able to reach the grip of Ringenberg's firearm on which Ringenberg could feel Clark pull. Ringenberg was aware Clark had his hand on the grip as he was able to reach behind himself and feel Clark's whole hand on the grip. He was unable to move, remove Clark's hand from the grip. Recognizing that Clark had control of his weapon, Ringenberg told Schwartzy multiple times that Clark had his gun. Bonnie Ringenberg told Schwartzy more than once to shoot Clark. Schwartzy said that Ringenberg's voice had a tone on it that was, quote, the most sincere panic voice I'd ever heard, end quote. Schwartzy told Clark he was going to shoot him. If he did not let go, Clark responded, I'm ready to die, end quote. Schwartzy's first attempt failed, but on the second attempt, he shot him. The use of deadly force is justified if the officer reasonably believes that death or great bodily harm to himself or another will likely result if he does not act. In this case, Officer Riggenberg subjectively believed that Clark had or was in the process of obtaining control of his weapon. And were Clark able to remove the weapon from his holster, both Riggenberg and Schwartzy likely would be shot. Riggenberg's subjective belief is also objectively reasonable. First, Clark's DNA was found on Ringenberg's gun, mace container, and his, and his holster. Next, the keepers designed to keep Ringenberg's utility belt in place had become unsnapped. Moreover, when Ringenberg is free of Clark, the video clearly shows that his belt is turned in such a way that his gun is behind his back. As he stands, Ringenberg can be seen adjusting his duty belt back to its normal situation. These facts corroborate Ringenberg's belief that Clark was forcibly pulling on his belt and holding his gun, and it was objectively reasonable to believe he was attempting to remove it. Minnesota statute 609.504 provides that the disarming or attempting to disarm a police officer is a felony. An attempt to obtain control of the firearm of a peace officer presents a grave danger to the peace officer bystander. The attempt alone suggests a willingness to use a firearm if it is successfully removed from the holster. Once removed, an assailant can instantaneously begin firing the weapon. There is no time for recovery in that situation. Even if the person is not ultimately successful, an attempt to gain control of an officer's weapon creates a significant risk of injury. Ringenberg and Schwartzy were interviewed separately. 
Both stated they believed that without the use of deadly force, Clark would have obtained possession of Ringing Bird's firearm. Each stated their independent fear of being shot. Accordingly, the Hennepin County Attorney's Office has concluded that criminal charges are not warranted against either Officer Mark Ringenberg or Officer Dustin Schwartz. I will now play the video from that evening. As I said earlier, the complete videos will be on the Hennepin County Attorney's Office website later today. Right now you're going to see key portions of the civilian's video and the videos taken from the back of both the ambulance that treated Rayon Hayes and the second ambulance that treated Jamar Clark. These ambulance videos have been shortened to relevant parts. There are other police videos and civilian videos that simply do not reflect whatsoever what happened at the moment of the shooting or just before. Some of these videos show what happened after, which under Supreme Court precedent is essentially irrelevant the question of whether criminal charges should be brought. Complete videos will be on the website. You don't have to trust my editing. But I wanted to do it in a way that we could focus uh, on the key parts. The first video was taken by a civilian, Danny Blaylock. interpret it, that's taken from the north side of Plymouth Avenue, 1611, from the side where the Ellis Club is, and it's down pointing towards the area where Officers Riggenberg and Schwartzy were, and Mr. Clark is lying on the ground. It's obviously very difficult to see much. What you can do if you look at it uh, tonight yourself, you can stop it frame by frame. Um, I wanted you to see something from a civilian video that showed a little bit about what the scene was like, also for people to see how difficult it is to interpret what happened in videos. I know that many people think videos are the panacea and will resolve all disputes in every criminal situation. That simply isn't true. There are videos that sometimes do show that. Sometimes an officer is wearing a body camera or there's a clear view from a squad car video. That doesn't happen all the time, and it didn't happen here. But again, so you can draw your own conclusions. What we're going to do is to put all the videos up, and they'll be up later this afternoon. All right, the second one is a video with Ruth Ann Hayes being moved to the ambulance. Okay? Now that's the side of the ambulance. Those are the two MTs, and, and she is there on the chair, and you will see at the top left-hand corner, Jamar Clark enter the scene. You'll see his legs in his coat.
see the officer speaking to Um, the third is also from the same ambulance, and you can see Jamar Clark at the foot of the ambulance. Before we play, the total ambulance tape is like 25 minutes long. It shows the ambulance when it full, first pulled up. It shows this. The clip of Jamar at the back of the ambulance is approximately five minutes. You can look at it all on the website. We'll show you a piece of it so you see what happened. There's okay. Mr. Clark. Stop that miniature. Um, at the bottom, you saw discussion that it was reversed. I'm not a technology person. What I understand is the cameras back of the ambulance are reversed. So, although the people were standing on the left side, as you see here, the original video shows them on the right hand side. So, they've been transposed as best we can tell for real life. See that comment on the bottom there. See so reverse, and then there's the time. And that's Greenwich Mean Time. So that's 6 42 50, or here in Minnesota, that's uh, 12 42 56. Clark at the doors. Um, the next will be uh, the supervisor in the white shirt. That's Deputy Chief EMS Chief Trulinger who comes to the scene. That's Trulinger. You'll see Clark is off to the left side. You'll see him in a minute.
same. We need that's Trulinger walking up, and you'll see it on the next video. That was Trulinger walking towards the police officers, towards the and Ringenberg that arrived. This is the most important video, and we will stop it a couple of times. I'm not trying to influence anyone. I'm just trying to tell you what there, so you can draw your own conclusions. Okay. That's Trulinger, and that's Officer Ringenberg, and that's Officer Schwarzy at the top. And Clark's feet. Sir, I know there's lots of people who want to talk, and I'm certainly willing to have people take this podium. I'd be glad to answer a couple of questions. Um, what are you going to do when you can't get reelected in 2018? Uh, I've got a question. You said there was DNA evidence, but were there any fingerprints filed on the gun or the uh, belt? Just DNA evidence. But no fingerprints. No fingerprints. Is it normal to put two kind of cops in a car together alone after they've killed someone? I'll be glad to answer your question just more. Normally it's fingerprints are a lot harder to get off a gun normally. Yes, ma'am, you had a question? Is it normal to put two officers in a car together after they've killed someone? Does that not allow them to create a story? Does that not allow them to create a narrative? You would there never is. put two criminals together. Why would you put two cops together that just killed someone? Alone. Is that, that's, is that normal? Two yeah. Somebody let them sit together in a car alone without body cameras? May I answer your question? Go ahead. And may. then I have a follow-up after her question. You certainly may. The camera was on in the office in the vehicle that transported the two officers away. Okay. It showed in the back seat where Officer Riggenberg was. The audio shows no conversations between those two officers in the car. When they got to the police station, they were separated and put in separate offices as is standard procedure. Can you publish that video also? I'm sorry? Can you publish that video also? Uh, yeah. I don't... 
Yes, we will. If we don't have it today, we'll put it up as soon as we can get it. With audio. So the audio and the video. I'm, I'm struck by a couple things. Number one, in your narrative, you didn't talk about the fact that he was violently slammed from behind by a police officer. That was shocking for me to see that in a chokehold after you led everyone to believe that Jamar Clark was the aggressor. So I definitely take issue with that. Number two, what role did the Minneapolis Police Department play in investigating this incident? prior to the involvement of the DCF? Let me answer your second question first. The Minneapolis police did take a number of items that night. As I understand it, and I can to be corrected at the precise time. The next morning, the MPD was pulled off the case and the DCA began. So for example, as I stated, it was an MPD MPD officer went to the hospital to take pictures of Mr. Clark's wrist. And it was an MPD forensic officer who went back to take more pictures. Sometime that morning, I just don't recall precisely when, the MPD was pulled off and the BCA took place at the request of both the mayor and the chief of police. And my understanding from some of the witnesses was that MPD came out and started questioning them on the night in question. And had we as community members not requested an independent investigation, the MPD would have likely continued to investigate this matter, even though there's no trust with the Minneapolis Police Department, given their violent and abusive actions, particularly towards the African-American community. So it is very difficult for us to trust any evidence that has been presented by the Minneapolis Police Department. Your entire I make, narrative. May, may I respond no, to No, not yet. Oh, Your entire narrative okay. today was to push the propaganda of the MPD. Not once did you give a fair account of what took place with Jamar, and you never gave us any information from Sorry. witnesses. All you did was push the information that you got as witnesses from the officers who were the ones who victimized and ultimately murdered Jamar. You, Mr. Freeman, did not give a fair and accurate portrayal of what took place with your investigation. Today, you push propaganda. And let me tell you, if the city burns, it's on your hands. You spoke MPD accounts as fact and truth. May, may I respond to those comments okay, first? No, but you I, spoke MPD accounts I would appreciate All right. If, if I appreciate your comments. You will see later this afternoon, not only this speech, you will see a detailed analysis of all the facts with footnotes, okay, attached, referencing directly to the reports they came from. And Professor, you of course are familiar with footnotes, and you can trace them back. All of the reports will also be, so you can look at those reports. The DNA will also all be there, and the DNA conclusions, the autopsy will be there. You will have an unprecedented amount of material, and you are entitled to draw any conclusion you want to do. Now, I will say to your first question, Professor, I would like to say... Mr. Freeman, since you referenced me in footnotes as a professor, I will tell you that when I'm writing scholarly articles, footnotes are something that someone can go back and read later, but that's not the main focal point of any scholarly analysis. So to talk about witness testimony as footnotes is completely unacceptable because I did not hear you say that any of the witnesses corroborated the officer's accounts of what happened. And it is very difficult for us to believe that all of that took place in 60 seconds. That conversation that you claim happened between the officers and Mr. Clark. We saw him be violently grabbed to the ground, 
We heard from witness statements that contradict what you and the officers are stating. And you did not give any credence or credibility to what the witnesses on the north side had to say about what happened. That is the problem with this system today. It's very difficult for the average citizen to get justice in a system that protects officers who engage in misconduct. And you have not held one singer officer accountable who has killed someone since you have been the county attorney, which is completely unacceptable. So we came today expecting that there would be a no charging decision, when instead we should have confidence that there are checks and balances in our system and that there will be some semblance of justice when unarmed people get killed. You also wove into your narrative at least twice, as though it were a major point, that you claim Jamar Clark said, I am ready to die, which appears to be some sort of explanation or justification right. for the right. actions that huh? Were there any of those 50 witnesses, and can you identify them, that corroborated that they heard Jamar Clark say, I am ready to die? That's right. I'll try to answer your question, sir. It's not hard. Um, no. The only people who heard what Jamar said were the two officers. And yet there were 50 witnesses there. I have a question. I'm sorry, I'm going to take Mr. Shannon's next, and then I'll take yours. Okay. When you decided you were going to take this to the grand jury, have you made your decision on charging the platform? No. Um, we had, I purposely assigned a senior prosecutor to work with the BCA from day one. And she worked with them to make sure that the investigation was done as thoroughly and completely as possible. Okay. I did not review any of the evidence until it was first submitted by the BCA. Okay, until it was in. That's February 20th or something. I, David, about five days before I blew my knee out. I can remember those. Uh, I did that because I wanted to look at it all at one time and not be overwhelmed by one particular report or something else. Um, the, uh, the grand jury process, as I said in my previous speech, really began 16 months ago, right after Ferguson. And I've been working on that for quite a while. And there have been periods of time when I'm certain that I would not do the grand jury again. And there are times that I thought I could reform the process to do it. But in the last months, I'm increasingly convinced that I don't believe I could do what I'm trying to do today, and that is to go through chapter and verse of the narrative of what occurred, nor provide a detailed report, nor to provide all the police reports, nor to provide the autopsy, nor to provide uh, the DNA reports. All of that, everyone is going to review. And, you know, if people have differing views after they see that, I respect that. But my job, my job is not to run the police department. My job is not to run the judicial system. My job is to do the county attorney's work as fairly and completely and competently as I can. And I took it upon myself and my folks to make this decision versus having to go to the grand jury because I felt it was more transparent and more accountable. Same result. Well, let me answer this question, then I've got it. In, in your investigation, I and in your timeline, I did not hear any mention of anybody giving a green light to wash blood off of the sidewalk before investigation <coughs> began. How did that happen? When did that happen? I, re I arrived at the scene six to eight hours post, and none of the uh, people who 
witnessed it, were interviewed, nobody was talked to. Actually, they said that they were being pushed into their houses and told to be silent. So when did the blood get washed out the sidewalk? Where's the footage of that, and, and, and who do we hold accountable for that? Because if the, if the investigation hadn't started, where did the blood on the sidewalk go? I have no idea. Oh. In your investigation, but you did a thorough investigation. And did you know that the blood had been washed out the sidewalk before uh, interviews had begun? I believe some interviews began that night, immediately after um, Jamar was shot. You believe, but do you yes. know? By do you the know? Minneapolis Police Department, yes, interviews began, and that's part of the problem. Because Minneapolis Police Department officers have been known to lie on reports. They have been known to support and corroborate information, especially in cases in which an unarmed civilian was killed. Some people said he was handcuffed. Others say that he was restrained the entire time. The bottom line is that we are leaving here with more questions than answers about why a young, unarmed, African-American man would wind up not only shot, but shot in the head. And the only people who have corroborated the statements that you referenced are the two officers who murdered Jamar Clark. I hope that the public wakes up and that they understand that you have a chance to work hand in hand with the powers that be to put a narrative forward that is in contradiction to what African-American people on the north side said happened that night. That's right. We have to stand here and be the voice of the people who are often on the fringes, who are marginalized, and whose accounts of what happened are not taken seriously. That is part of the problem in this system, when you go up against those who have all of the power. And frankly, we're tired of it. We want to be treated with dignity and respect. We want the system to respect our humanity. We want you and others to realize that black lives do matter. And we will not rest until we get justice. Professor, you're going to have a chance, as is everyone else who wants to look at the website, to see what I said, a more detailed report of the facts with annotations and footnotes. You're going to have a chance to see every police report so you can compare them yourself. You're going to have a chance to look at all the DNA reports. You're going to have a chance to look at the autopsies. That will all be available. I'm sure you'll draw your own conclusion. Sorry, i got to go. You've already mentioned that conclusion. You've already linked what the conclusion we're supposed to have. Go, 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 go. 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 Go